Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you prioritize your happiness health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if you're listening to my voice right now, and this is your very first episode, I wanted to say welcome. I am super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. I just want to say how much I appreciate you for being a regular listener and subscriber. And whether you're a new friend or an old friend, you and I are both in a treat for today as we hang out for today's guest. Because today's guest is, as NBC News calls him, the godfather of the slow movement. Or as the Huffington Post says, he is the unofficial godfather of a growing cultural shift towards slowing down. <laughs> That's right. Today, we are joined by Carl Honore. Carl is a best-selling author, broadcaster, and the voice of the slow movement. His two main stage TED Talks have racked up millions of views. His first book, In Praise of Slow, chronicles the global trend towards putting on the brakes in everything from work to food to parenting. His other books include Under Pressure, Rescuing Our Children from the Culture of Hyperparenting, The Slow Fix solve problems, work smarter, and live better in a world addicted to speed. And his newest book is called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. Published in 35 languages, his books have landed on bestseller lists in many countries. In Praise of Slow was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week and the inaugural choice for the Huffington Post Book Club. It was also featured in a British TV sitcom, Argentina's version of A Big Brother, and a TV commercial for the Motorola tablet. Under Pressure was shortlisted for the Writer's Trust Award, the top prize for nonfiction in Canada, and Boulder was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week and a Reader's Digest Book of the Month. Carl was also featured in a series for BBC Radio 4 called The Slow Coach, in which he helped frazzled, overscheduled people slow down. He also presented a television show called Frantic Family Rescue on Australia's ABC One. And in this episode, you will learn a ton, but here are three things I want you to look forward to. Number one, why doing things slower can help you get better results, increase your happiness, and strengthen your relationships, and why building a business slower can be better too. Number two, how even though Carl is a TED speaker and has delivered presentations all over the world, he actually used to be extremely afraid of public speaking. And number three, why you and I shouldn't feel so rushed in life. And he teaches this from leveraging lessons from a famous 80-year-old grandma from Lebanon who did candid camera-style pranks, and one of her most popular ones was buying Viagra, and it was really funny to see people's reactions. You can check it out. Even though it's in Leb Lebanese, you don't have to understand the language to see people's reactions. 
So with Carl's crazy impressive bio being read, one last thing I want to do is give a pre-show listener shout out to Fret Not, who said, it rocks. I love the practical takeaways Brandon always provides. It's bursting with value and interesting discussion. I love its entrepreneurial angle while always prioritizing balance, family, and happiness over simply making money. Thanks so much. So Fret Not, if you're tuning in with us today, I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for leaving that review. I really appreciate it. And if you're a regular listener, I would really appreciate it if you could follow Fret Not's example and leave a review on iTunes or wherever the heck you're listening to this podcast. And if you're brand new, don't worry about that quite yet. Let's let's have an incredible experience listening to this first show, and then maybe you consider leaving a review afterwards. But with all that out of the way, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my new friend, Carl Honore. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Carl, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm just as excited. Awesome. Well, so I just want to publicly thank Sarah Archer for introducing us. And when she first sent me the show that she recorded with you, she says, you got all this content on slow. I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so excited for this interview. And as I've spent more time diving into your content, I've realized more and more layers to this. So I'm really excited to dive in. And I know you say in your content that you were a speedaholic and I'll have to admit that I did listen to some of your content on 2.5 to four times speed. So maybe you can, <laughs> maybe you can crack down on me a little bit uh, as a result of that, but I, I'm working on this stuff as well. So I'm excited to dive in, but I, I thought a good place to start before we get into all the slow content one of the things that I saw from your LinkedIn and a little bit on your Wikipedia page is that it says that you worked with street children in, I don't know how to say this, Fortaleza, Brazil. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you ran, you, you, after you graduated from Edinburgh with a degree in history and Italian, you worked with street children inspiring, and then it inspired you to take up journalism. So I would love for you to maybe set the scene and tell us a story of what made you decide to do that initiative, first of all, and how that ended up inspiring journalism. Yeah, well, I guess, uh, gosh, I'm spooling back a few years now. I, I guess I've always had a slight save the world complex. Um, and and it, it became apparent to me that that was the case when I went and did a kind of cultural exchange to the Northeast of Brazil, which is a very uh, poor backward area and just came face to face. You know, I came from a, a comfortable, affluent, middle-class Canadian background. And suddenly I found myself face to face with really, I mean, eye-watering poverty and violence on a scale it's really hard to conceive of in the first world. And I just, I don't know, it kind of shook a lot of my views about the world and what it, my place it would be. And so I thought, well, I, what, what can I do to, to, to help? And so I came back after my graduated and I worked with street children. And that, of course that took me even deeper into more dark places. And I just thought I need to, what can I do to, to make this better or add my little twinkle of light to the sun. And I, I was going to, I had a kind of fork in the road moment where I had two choices. They offered me full-time post working with street children. Cause I spent a few months setting up shoe shine cooperatives and doing basic literacy teaching for the kids. And I love doing it. And, and the other option was to come back into, you know, Europe and North America and write about these things, right. Come back as a journalist. And I thought, I don't know, I had, I had a whole week of long nights, of the soul and walking far all the way around Fortaleza and back. And I, and I decided to go with option two. So I, I then became a journalist, went back to South America, wrote about 
injustice, poverty, and all these things. And um, and that was a, a decade of my life was given over to that. So did your parents send you, did they, did they encourage that? Or how did this opportunity end up coming up for you to do this? Cause if you're in this affluent, you know, growing up in Canada and that kind of stuff, how did this opportunity come yeah, across? Well, it's, just- it was one of those serendipitous things. I was just wandering around a, a, a academic fair in my hometown in Edmonton. And I stumbled across a, a stand for a program called Canada world youth, which is a longstanding program that sends groups of Canadians or brings them together with young um, people from various countries across the developing world they spend a few months in Canada together working in local jobs, and then they go back to the, the, the developing world country and do the same. And, and actually, it was all it was such a spin of the wheel because I, I had no interest, to be honest, in Latin America at all. I wanted to go to Africa. And so I put all they, for the Canada World Youth application, they said, what are your top three countries? And mine were sort of Malawi, Zimbabwe or something. You know, They were all Africa. And they came back and they offered me Brazil. And I thought, again, I had a long thought. And I thought, well, do I really want? And then I went. So it was it just kind of. I often think looking back that a lot of things that completely re-altered the course of my life felt slightly sort of random or I don't know, like moments of deus ex machina meets shoot from the hip whim. I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I, I guess with any life story, you look back and you try to impose order and logic to it, but maybe a lot of these paths that we choose actually are kind of random in a way. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So was that something that was that one of the first tastes that you had of international travel and that kind of stuff? Because I know you you grew up in Edinburgh or no, sorry, you were born in Edinburgh. You grew up in Canada and you speak like five languages now. So was that like your first experience of traveling internationally and tasting other cultures, other cultures? It, it, it was. I mean, I, I, I had already done one year at Edinburgh University by that point. So I guess I'd been away in Scotland. I'd never really traveled that much outside of, and that was, a, that was, you know, a university and then I have family there and so on. So no, not, that was, that was my first foray, I suppose, into that kind of travel way off the beaten path into places that were completely mysterious and unknown and slightly frightening to me. So yeah, no, it was, a, it was a, it was a baptism of fire in so, so many ways. Really. And, and, and it ended up very impressionable age. You know, I guess I was, when I went there the first time I was 19. So I was, you know, I was beginning to form some inchoate ideas about who I was and how I slotted into the world and then to be wrenched out of the familiar and thrown into, into something utterly foreign and alien. Um, that, that was, I think I look back and I think that was a blessing, right? A blessing in disguise. Yeah. Well, it's cool to see the seeds of that being planted because I know in just reading your content and listening to you is just like culture and language and, and travel is just so important to you. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of cool to see that that was like introduced and it kind of started pushing you down this path. And so this, this may not be uh, the, the swift, the, the best transition, but I did want to kind of leverage this as an opportunity to talk about another story. And one of the things that you share in your book and in, in your Ted talk is the story about how you began to realize that your life was going too fast. And you tell the story about, uh, that has to do with the bedtime story with your son. Yeah. So I was, I was, I was, I was hoping if you could maybe tell that story, because I think that that would sure. kind of set us up for the rest of the conversation about slow. Yeah. Well, that's almost a kind of segue point from that first, what I think of as the first chapter of my life, which was working as a journalist. And towards the end of that stage, I had just got stuck in fast forward. So every moment of my day had become a race against the clock. And I was, I was hurrying through my life instead of living it. And I think when we get stuck in fast forward like that, for a lot of people, they need a wake up call or some kind of shock the system that makes you realize I've forgotten how to put on the brakes. This is doing me real harm. 
and a lot of people that wake up call comes in the form of an illness. The body says, no, one day this is, this is it. Can't take it anymore. And you have a burnout. I had my wake up call, as you say, when I started reading bedtime stories and I was just so fast in those days, right? I, my version of Snow White had three dwarves, right? It was just ridiculous. You know? <laughs> my, my son, and I became an expert. In fact, I call, I used to think of it as the multiple page turn technique, which I don't know if you, anyone who's had children, when you, you get to try and turn three, four pages at the same, you know, you're trying to get through the book so fast. But the kids know these stories back to front, right? So my son would always catch me out and say, you know, you know, why are there three doors tonight? You know, what happened to Grumpy? And, and this, this really lamentable state of affairs went on for some time until I caught myself flirting with buying a book that I heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in 60 Seconds. And I thought, yeah, bring that book on now, right? Amazon drone delivery. And then, of course, the light bulb went on over my head and I thought, really? Am I really in such a hurry that I'm going to fob off my little boy with a soundbite instead of a story at the end of the day. And, and that was, was one of those moments of genuine scorching epiphany, like an out-of-body experience where you suddenly, it's like you're at the, up by the roof, you see yourself down on the ground and you just see your, and you just see what you see there is so unedifying. You think, no, this can't carry on like this. And so that was for me, the inflection point when I began investigating not only my own addiction to speed, but the bigger picture, right? As a journalist, mm-hmm. you always want to know, or I do anyway, I'm always, curious about not only my own story, but how it intersects with the bigger story. So that kind of launched me into the next chapter, which was becoming this sort of strange sort of slow crusader, I suppose. Yeah, I get called everything from the guru of slow to the the high priest of slow. My, my favorite one actually is I, I, <laughs> get called, I, think, I think the Huffington Post called me the godfather of slow. And I kind of like that one because it's it's sort of edgy. It's sort of like you know, if you don't slow down, you might wake up in the morning and find a horse's head in your pillow or something, right? It gives it a bit of um, a slightly darkish edge to it. So that's one of my favorite ones. But um, anyway, that so that bedtime story, Epiphany, was really the launch pad for all the slow work that came after that. Mm, I love that. So I, I wanted to kind of ask a really zoom in really specifically on this moment. So you had this moment where you're sitting in bed with your son. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to speed up one of the most intimate moments with my kid where I'm supposed to be spending time with them. And then, you know, that was kind of the start of this, this whole movement and you becoming the, the godfather of slow. And now we all have these little Carl shoulder angels t- telling us that we need to be slower. <laughs> but so I, I want, but I wanted to ask like, what, what was that next day like then? So like you had this realization, was it like, I just need to change things now. And it was kind of a 180 and you just started cutting everything off like what after you had that epiphany how did you start to change your life and that and how did it end up starting into the fact that you wrote a book about it yeah well I, I think what often happens now and this is one of the ironies today is that we're also impatient that we even want to slow down quickly right so I do think people often have that moment of truth or that epiphany and they think yeah I gotta slow down and then what do they do they sign up for yoga class and then they finish that and they run across the street to do some mindfulness and you think wait a minute this isn't quite this isn't quite stacking up with what slow is all about uh, thankfully i didn't go down that road right for me it was a, it was slowing down was a slow process and i think that is really how it has to be for everyone especially if you are a card carrying road runner you know if it's woven into your dna you're a naturally fast person I'd been marinated in speed as a foreign correspondent for 10 years. You don't just step out of that one day to the next. You know, it takes time. It's like coming off a drug, right? It's there are withdrawal symptoms. You make two steps forward, maybe one back, a couple steps sideways. You stop for a while, then you move forward again. So that was that was my progress. I think that kind of crazy map of forward, backward, sideways and stuff. The next day, I mean, I, I 
not sure exactly what happened the next day, but definitely after hearing about the story and the light bulb going on, I know then that I got on an airplane because I remember very clearly I was standing in, in the line to get on a plane at the time when I read about this one minute bedtime story. And I did something on the plane that I'd really never done before. And that was that I did nothing. Normally I'd have whipped out my laptop or the, at the very least the online or in-flight magazine, right? Or sorry, or got a notebook out or done something. Yeah. But I actually did nothing, right? Which is so profoundly countercultural and runs so deeply or ran so deeply against my grain at the time that for me, that felt like a big leap. You know, that felt like a a break from the past. And I just sat there for about two or three hours, whatever the flight was getting back to London, just, just kind of thought, you know, again, did something I think very few of us do now, which was I reflected. I actually sat quietly and thought about big questions, life in general, and, and came off the plane at the other end thinking, change is a coming, right? The times they are, are a change. And I don't know just exactly yet how, but it will happen. And so that was sort of where the seed was planted. And then I guess from there, I began, you know, taking, making small steps in different walks of my life from the workplace to the way I eat, to exercise, everything, but long-term process. So it's been uh, over 15 years since, since you had that, that moment, right? So now your, your, your kids are kind of growing up. And so I was, I was curious to maybe ask a a question from a kind of a, a different angle, but in my research, I came across, you said, you said to yourself, I wish I had wised up to the folly of trying to do everything faster sooner. That was like something that you wish that you could, you could tell yourself, but now you have this opportunity where you have kids that are, that are younger and you can kind of tell them about the, the, the epiphanies that you had and slowing life down. And so I was kind of curious if, if we could kind of erase the fact that I know you've, as, as a slow coach, you're already incorporating this in your lifestyle. You've obviously educated your kids about this, but let's pretend hypothetically that you haven't taught your kids about slow yet. And you wanted to kind of impart your wisdom on them. How mm. would you go about teaching slower, inspiring them to have a slower lifestyle? Well, I mean, I do, I do a lot of work with parents and schools and so on. So this is something that I'm dealing with, well, not quite day to day, but you know, in my, in my work all the time. And I always feel like the the starting point is, yourself, right? As the parent, uh, that old Gandhi thing of being the change you want to see in the world, right? You know, you've got to model slow. If, if you're racing around as a parent, like a headless chicken, constantly distracted by your inbox, juggling endless to-do lists, never present, never there, always breathless and multitasking, you're never going to be able to slow your children down, right? It's just not going to happen. They're never going to learn. They're going to pick up and, and emulate that similar behavior. So I always feel like the first stage is always getting your own house in order, right? Reconnecting with your own inner tortoise and then starting to make, you know, pass down the tablets of stone, if you like, or, 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 or rearrange. I mean, partly it's macro, partly it's micro. So macro is how you, the whole family changes, right? You think about how, um, how the family is going to use time, questions about how many extracurricular activities are going to be sensible for the family, for each child. Um, the way you eat um, together, you know, versus separately, uh, you reinvent, you create rituals that are slow, whether it's doing puzzles, a huge puzzle on the end of the kitchen table, or having evening meals together with the phone switched off whenever possible, right? It's eating together, um, teaching how to use technology, right? That's another thing as well as holding, that's something we did do actually because when this happened, first of all, my kids were pretty young and we held off on giving them screens and gadgets and phones as long as possible and definitely don't regret that at all because it meant that a bit like Steve Jobs, right? I mean, he sold us how many 
iPads and iPhones, but never gave his own kids either, right? Until they were quite a bit older. Why? Because he wanted them to he wanted them to slow down, right? He wanted them to get bored, uh, to play freely, to use their imagination, to go outside and mess around, to play, do things tactile with their hands. He wanted them to have a, a genuinely slow childhood, right? So I think that's a big part of it as well, especially nowadays, is forging a, a healthier, more sensible, more slow relationship with gadgets in the household all around. And I noticed that with my own kids that they did get their phones eventually, right? When they were in their, um, both went away to um, what we call, um, well, I guess it would be high school in North America, right? So um, grade seven. And by then they'd already had, you know, a good number of years of realizing that you don't, there's so much to be had, not plunked in front of a screen. And in fact, they would often go to friends' houses and say, well, it was a bit boring because they just wanted to sit in front of the screen all the time, right? And I wanted to play. And so, so we could have those conversations about why that was, why that was a shame or what was being lost there and what was being gained by not allying yourself so fervently to an electronic screen and so on. So by the time they got to those adolescent years, I think they were kind of inoculated a little bit against that tendency to get addicted, right? Um, so I see them now and they're, you know, my daughter's 19, my son's 22. They both have phones and they both do stuff online, but they're very both very disciplined about it, right? You know, they, I see, I, whenever I come upstairs, my daughter's phone is outside her bedroom in the evening, right? She leaves it outside. Uh, my son used to, he, he bought his own Xbox to play um, FIFA, right, soccer, um, back when he was probably 14 or something. And he still plays it, but he, you know, he plays it half an hour here, an hour there, he plays it with friends and stuff. But none of this kind of, you know, four-hour binges. And it just feels like they've come out of that with a pretty sensible handle on things, right? Mm. And I think, I I think that's that. partly helped by, by, by that, those bases that you set early on. You set the dials early on and it, it helps. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole concept of show don't tell, I just think that that's such a, you know, I love that answer that it's not, you didn't have to sit down and have a conversation. This is what you need to tell your kids about technology. It's like, they're going to model your behavior. Uh, so for the the parents that are listening to this, you know, you know, are, if you want your kids to slow down and, you know, be more like kids and getting like that, think, think about how you can start to change your behavior first and start to model that for what. Your and kids also, do. I think also is listening to children as well, you know, the from the mouths of babes, right? I mean, in a sense, what my whole epiphany with a bedtime story. That was, in a way, that was me waking up to what my son was telling me, which is, I want seven dwarves in the story, not three, right? <laughs> you know, I want you to stay here for the whole story, not some abridged version of it. And I think very often what happens when we get stuck in fast forward as, as parents, as grownups, is that we, we shut down. We don't listen. We don't hear. We don't read between the lines. We don't detect the signals that our children are sending to us. And our children are sending the same signal, which is, be here with me now. Listen. Let's shut out the sound and fury of modern life and just be together. Let's do something together, right? I, I had a experience of this recently where a, f a friend of mine, a neighbor I bumped into the other day said that she'd, you know, she's at home now working. And so she's totally relying on her phone, has a high powered job. And, and, and she lost her phone one morning, big meeting, was going to do it on Zoom on her or on some kind of app on her phone. Couldn't find it, was running around, tearing the house apart, you know, five minutes before the meeting. Her daughter appears, seven-year-old daughter, holding the phone and says, I got your phone, got your phone. And she said, oh, whew, thank you so much. Where was it? And she said, well, I hit it. And my friend said, what, what do you mean you hit it? She said, well, I, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted you to listen to me. You, you, you're always looking at your phone. I wanted you to listen to me, right? And my, my friend just, you know, just her, the blood went cold in her veins. And she, she suddenly thought, whoa, right? You know, this is what it's become, you know? And, and I think that that 
signal that we can, if we're open to it. And the only way to be open to those signals is to slow down ourselves in the first place, right? Because if you're just in roadrunner mode and you have one speed and it's turbo, you don't pick up that stuff. You're in that tunnel of speed, everything glances off you and you're moving through as quickly as possible to the next thing. Um, there's that, that that expression that comes out of Silicon Valley, right? Frictionless, right? That everything should be frictionless, yeah? And I think that's such a bane, <laughs> that's such a curse because you want friction. It's when when friction happens, friction produces heat. That's when the interest to the, the creative sparks fly, right? And if you make everything frictionless, you just end up, what happens? You just get all the way through your life as fast as possible. You get to the tomb or the cemetery first, but what, what's stuck along the way, right? And it's, I think you need to have in those little friction points, those little moments of slowness, those moments where things aren't moving smoothly, right? Especially in family life where it's a little bit awkward. Maybe you don't, you're in awkward silence. Nobody's quite sure what to say. You're, you're together in the kitchen, but you're not necessarily doing things together, but you're sort of there. And it, 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 everything doesn't have to be a perfect frictionless Kodak moment either, right? You know, with family, you, you want to have the, the rough, and the smooth, the arguments, right? The, the sulking and the shouting and stuff. That's part of it too. The trouble now, I think, when we get into the efficiency first, frictionless Silicon Valley view of family life or personal life or home life, is that everything has got to be, you know, completely fungible, right? You just sort of, it's optimized, right? There's another word, right? You optimize your life. God, who wants to optimize? I mean, you want to optimize a love affair or do you want to, how do you don't optimize love, right? <laughs> you don't speed it up either. You know, no matter how much of a rush you're in, you can't make someone fall in love with you faster because you want to get married next week. It doesn't, doesn't happen like that. You need time. Yeah. I love that. And I love the playing with friction comment. I interviewed somebody on the show. His name is Mark McShirley. And he was talking about how he grew this, this roofing company to, to a monstrosity over the course of, uh, you know, four years, like really fast growth. And one of the things that he thought was really interesting was that he, in the beginning of the sales process, he tried to reduce friction. Like he would try to make it as seamless as possible to book and all this kind of stuff. But then what he did is he started increasing the amount of friction and like actually creating opportunities for people to have conversations, you know, like, and adding that into the business. And I think that that's really relevant too. Like you said, in family life, like, you know, if, if everything is frictionless and you're not having these points of contact and actually being able to interact with people, you lose out on what makes it a family, you know? Uh, so I, I love that comment. And the other thing I wanted to, to say is I know that there was kind of like this kind of like a fairy tale ending to the bedtime story thing where your son wrote something to you. And so things did change. You might, you mind maybe tell, finishing that part sure, of the story? Yeah. Off? Well, exactly. I mean, a couple of years later, when I'd written my book in praise of slow, I was getting ready to do a book tour of the U S and the bags were packed, door was open, waiting for the cab to take me to Heathrow. And my son appeared, came down the stairs with a card he'd made. And he just stapled together two index cards. And on the front cover, he'd put a sticker of Tintin. And, you know, everyone knows who Tintin is. We're big Tintin fans. And I recognized the sticker because a friend of the family had brought it to him as a gift from the Tintin store in Brussels. My son, when he got this sticker, he said, wow, so special. I'm never using it. So it had vanished into a corner of his room. But there it was in the front of the card. I opened up the card and inside it just said, um, to daddy, love Benjamin. And I said, wow, Benjamin, what an amazing card. And the sticker, you know, I know how important that is. I'm honored is this a card to wish me good luck in the US on the book tour? And he said, no, this is a card for the best story reader in the world. And I thought, you know, as one would, right? I thought, wow, this slowing down thing really does what it says on the tin, right? <laughs> it, really, it really works. But I, I, I got to confess that I slightly spoiled the moment with my next thought. I didn't say this out loud, thankfully, but I thought to myself inside, I thought, Benjamin, why didn't you hurry up and say this six months ago? I could have finished my book with this beautiful anecdote. <laughs> but that, that is, <laughs> 
That is the opposite your of TED talk. That's the opposite <laughs> of slow. That's the opposite of slow. So let's kick that one to the side and you know, go back to my first thought, which is, wow, this this slowing down really works. Yeah, I love that. And and I don't know if I just live underneath a rock, but I had to Google what Tintin is, and so it, it is it is a cart. It's a cartoon, like a kids kids story. Yeah, it's it's from it's originally from Belgium. I mean, it's kind of it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's, a cartoon makes it sound um, sort of slightly infantile. It's no, they're you know proper stories. What, what do you call that? Like a like a um, I don't want to say picture book. That's the wrong term. What's the you know um, what's the these kind of um, books that people are putting out? That like adult books that have pictures in them. Sure, and, sure, okay. I kept I'm forgetting I'm, the name. I'm not remember either. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we get. Uh, <laughs> but it's sort of like that. So you know, you can read them as adults. I mean, but they're okay. great for children. And and I grew up with them at home. And so it was, oh, it was a real treat to read them again to my children and stuff. Love so, that. Um, well, well, maybe I'll have to go look up some Tintin books because I, I, <laughs> I had to figure out what that is. And yeah. so th- this is actually something I wanted to dive into too, is we've, we talked about kids and another thing that you do in your work is you have this concept of Boulder, which you're talking about aging. And so before we dive into that concept, there was, there's a concept that you share about uh, this happiness kind of U curve that ends up happening where we have a, a lot of happiness in childhood and then it, it kind of bottoms out in middle age and rises, rises as we get older. And so I was kind of curious to maybe talk about this because, you know, it is the seven figure millennials podcast. Like we were, we were joking about beforehand, we have people that listen that are not millennials and, and younger than millennials, but I mean, you would think about it if, if millennials are 25 and 40 ish right now, technically we are kind of heading towards that bottom of the U curve side of life. <laughs> so, so, you know, how, as somebody that has researched, you know, and spent time with helping parents slow down and educate their kids and be more present there. And somebody that has researched the happiness kind of things, how could we, as, as the audience listening to this, maybe not have as dramatic of a U curve or maybe skip the mm. U curve when yeah. it comes to <laughs> gratified. Turn it into a hump. So you're actually at the yes. top instead of, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just a very, very high plan, happy plateau. Um, yeah. Well, I think that there, are, I mean, it's, I guess what you're asking is what are some of the recipes for, for living a good life, right? For happiness. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, so I think some of the obvious ones are, I mean, cl- clearly things like, you know, physical health, all that sort of stuff plays in. Uh, human relationships, again, hugely important. I mean, a, a key determinant of emotional well-being and just general happiness is having a strong social network, right? And I don't mean a strong Facebook network. I mean, real people. <laughs> I have 5,000 friends. <laughs> that you can, exactly, that you can count on in person. <laughs> Right. Which is, that's a perfect, that's a perfect example of the fast versus slow dynamic, isn't it? You know, we've sort of sped up friendship. So we have 5,000 friends, but that's friends in inverted commas, isn't it? Right. How many of those have you ever spent a whole afternoon in a park just hanging out with, right? Just chatting. Um, so it's having those friends you can hang out the whole afternoon in the park with just chatting, having people who are, cl- who will be there, you know, when, when the crisis hits and, and you can turn to that makes us strong, happier. And so on. So that, that kind of thing. having a purpose, right. The whole kind of, uh, Japanese idea of ikigai, some kind of something, some sort of mission, purpose, something, and, and that's going to vary and evolve all the way through your life. You don't have to find it at seventeen, and then it's going to be with you your whole life. You know, it's, it, it will change in different stages. But having something that puts fire in your belly, that that makes you want to jump out of bed in the morning and look forward to the day, rather than thinking, "Ugh, it's Wednesday, I got to get up and get through another twelve-hour shift or whatever." Right. So something that that lights you up, right, in that sort of way. I think that's so so important. And both of those things that I talk about, social relationships and finding your purpose, both of those require slowness, right? The, the slow philosophy is the key to unlocking both of those because you don't, you don't download a purpose from an app, right? Uh, you don't 
you know, uh, buy friend. Well, you, I suppose you probably, you, in, in some ways you kind of do in dystopic films, but you don't buy friendship, right? Or love. <laughs> you, these things take a long time to build and cultivate and to keep on fertilizing, right? With time, time and attention, which both require slowness. So again, slow, I think is a real driver of happiness. I think for me, they're two sides of the same coin. Just one other one I'd throw in there as well is, and this can be a spinoff from purpose, but it can be freestanding as an idea for bumping happiness up at whatever age you are. And that is um, looking beyond yourself, right? Being of service to others. We know that, you know, and that goes to hand in hand with the whole kind of thing about gratitude, you know, just moving out of that selfish because fast is selfish, right? It's about ticking your own boxes, getting through to the next thing, the friction, the slowness. That's when you reach out of your bubble and try and serve something bigger than yourself, right? Helping, giving back all that stuff that many people feel I'll do that once I'm successful, right? I'll do that when I'm older. I'll do that when I retire. No, this is something we need to detonate is this stultifying three-stage life path that we've inherited from the past, right? Learning, earning, resting, right? <laughs> sort of the three stages of, I mean, when people now are going to be living and are living, you know, 90, 100 years, you know, that path, that makes no sense. We need to smash it into a million little pieces and and weave all of those things all the way through our lives. So learning isn't just for the first 20 years, right? It's something you do all the way through your life in different forms at different times. Earning can also be something you don't just stop at 65, right? You carry on in different forms all the way up, maybe to the very end. Um, resting, you know, why do we have to wait? You know, I'll, that old, that expression, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm, what's it? I'll sleep when I'm dead or something, sleep or I'll rest, dead, yeah. when I, I'll rest when I'm retired or something. I mean, that's just such a noxious, self-defeating idea because you need rest to recharge your your body, your mind, your spirit all the way through your life. So I think if we think of the life now, that life path getting extended, right? All those extra years that lets oxygen into the schedule and allows us to build in some of those things that we confine to other stages of life, spread them right across the arc, right? So that you can, sure, why not take a year out at 40, right? You think, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take a year. I'll do a gap year. I'll, I'll study for half that year. I'll travel. I'll, I'll push reset in, in a way that takes six months, 12 months, right? Rather than feeling you just, this is the time when you've got to be in this career and you can't leave it. And you'll do all this when you're 60 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, in, in a way that is a huge liberation, right? It takes so much pressure off, I think, younger people. And I, I, I kind of wish that I had this view of life before, because I definitely, when I was in my twenties, had this idea, man, I, I got to get this all done by the time I'm 30, right? Or, or that's it, you know? Or, and then I hit 30 and I realized that's preposterous. You know, I've got more time, but I still thought 40, man, game over, right? <laughs> game over at 40. I have to get it all in, right? It's going to be family, partner, career. I've got to get it all in because 40 is it's all downhill. Then I got to 40 and I realized, you know what? I'm actually feel like I'm at the top of my game now. <laughs> I'm looking forward to my 40s. My 40s were great. Now I'm 53, you know, and I'm feeling I'm soaring, right? And looking forward to the next thing. So if I'd had that idea before, I think it would have taken a lot of that deadline pressure that people often feel in those first two decades, right? Of adulthood, just to get it all done because, because somehow we feel that faster is better and there's not enough time. There's almost always enough time. There's almost always more time than you think. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's so much that you just shared that was just so valuable there. But I would encourage anybody listening, if if you haven't explored the concept of Ikigai that he mentioned, you know, kind of in the beginning of what he was sharing there, Ikigai is a really cool concept in, in Japanese culture. It's like the, the reason for getting out of bed in the morning. And they, they, there's been studies. Don't I, I, I know I read an article the other day was talking about the correlation between longevity and having an Ikigai, like a, a reason to wake up in the morning and how important that is. And the other thing I just want to highlight here is just playing the long term game. And you're right. I still, I still suffer from this right now where it's like, I, I just turned 25. I'm the youngest of the millennials. And like, I, I, I think about, you know, where I want my business to be when my family starts and all that kind of stuff. And it, it is liberating. You're right to, to, to think about a longer term game that it doesn't have to all be done and that you can enjoy the process. And, um, you know, part of the seven figure millennials mission that we talk about is there's the, the, there is a component of pursuing big financial goals because it, of what it, 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 creates you to be or forces you to be in, 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 in terms of growth. But the thing is, is that I think in our culture, you see so many ads on Facebook of people that, you know, made million dollars so fast like that. And they weren't like ready for it. Like, and they didn't even enjoy the process. I met so many incredible entrepreneurs that when you ask them about the fondest times of their career, it's not when they achieved the goal and hit the landmark of whatever financial thing. It was like, Hey, I, I missed it. But like my favorite part was actually when I was going through the whole process of building my business. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a nice mapping there over from what you, your work and and mine was slow because the whole essence of the slow creed is, is enjoying savoring and deriving all kinds of good stuff from the journey, right? Not, freaking out about getting to the destination. And that's so true in business in everything. It's not the kind of, as a successful entrepreneur, it's not the sitting down and counting your stock portfolio and your money in the bank, right? It's the stuff right. that led up to it, right? But the part of the problem, I think, I mean, there's so many reasons that we fall into that, especially as younger people fall into that idea of, thinking, you need to get to the end, need to get this done, need to get the money in, you know, and all that, get, need to get the IPO out as quickly as possible, is that that's the message that's coming at us in a dreary, never-ending drumbeat for the media, right? This mm-hmm. kind of deification of overnight success. This, it's always bombarding us with this idea that these big breakthrough entrepreneurs somehow got out of bed one morning and by the end of the weekend, it was all done, right? We never hear or very, we don't hear so much about the, 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 the months, the years of slow investment of time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears, right? Let's be honest, yeah, that got them to there and how often that is the rewarding bit like you say it's the kind of the doing rather than the the finishing that's that's so much that 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 gives life texture color and meaning yeah it's what i mean nobody nobody is going to look back on their deathbed and think well first of all they're not going to think i wish i spent more time on facebook yeah um <laughs> but they're they're they're, they're definitely not going to think you know oh i i, I look back and I, I want to sit th- that time when I, you know, cashed that really big check. And then I had all this, you know, it's that's so often when people feel a kind of deflation often, you know, a sort of disappointment, you get to that point, and then we think, well, I've reached this summit. I thought that was the end, but cl- I've got maybe 30, 40 more years. Where do I go from here? So, I mean, that's not to say that one shouldn't or can't enjoy the fruits of all those blood, sweat and tears. Right. I mean, and, and that that's great, but I, I think you're right to sort of situate them in a maybe slightly different constellation right to, to remind people of the importance of the stuff that leads up to it because that's what yeah that's what life is right it's the success is you know i mean crossing the finish line takes a split second right it's 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 in the greater scheme of things it's very little it's all the stuff leading up to it that's that's where the, the excitement often is 
Yeah. And just kind of to go a little bit more on the, the, the business side of things too. Like I've also met and heard of many stories of young entrepreneurs that came across incredibly fast growth. And what one of my mentors always encourages me to think about is that like fast growth doesn't always come with the wisdom required to handle the success yeah. that you see lots of people that grow really quickly, but then they didn't really go through the the learning cycles necessary to really sustain that wealth at a pace. And then they end up losing it uh, as a result of, of, you know, just incredibly fast growth. So for, for, you know, millennial entrepreneurs that are listening to this or, you know, even younger than that or older, wherever, when it comes to the topic of growing business slower, is there anything else that you have to add to that topic of like encouraging people to not have to worry about looking at all the the titles and doing it as fast as possible. Anything else you would say to somebody? Yeah, that maybe I'd say has a couple of things. I'd say a couple of things. One is to to try and look beyond the 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 barrage of messaging from the media, sort of glorifying the sort of faster, the bigger, the all that stuff, and 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 seek out. I mean, I know a lot of young entrepreneurs do this, but and do find it very useful is is seeking out you know networks and tribes of people who are at the same stage you're at, maybe someone who's six months further ahead, someone who's two years ahead, just to get a kind of range of experience and feedback. Uh, so you have a sense that this is an arc, that it's a long journey and that other people have followed similar paths and that you can pluck little nuggets of wisdom and experience and, and understanding to unlock your own path, right? It's not gonna be the same path, but there are many overlaps. So I think it's so important to, and again, this can sometimes happen. I've seen it happen with many, especially young entrepreneurs who get really, into the business and, and everything else falls away, right? Their friendships fall away, their health falls away, their partner, their, their marriage starts to, but they lose that kind of connection to other people. And, and you need, I think at every stage, it's helpful to have some kind of network around you of people who can, you know, whether it's calling out your BS or giving you a spinning an idea around so you see it from a different angle or sharing an experience that then puts your experience in this moment in a different light, so, so important. Um, and especially, I mean, that, and that can be people, as I say, who are just six months ahead of you, but, but often it's very helpful to have someone like find someone who's much further ahead, you know, someone maybe who's 20 years ahead, who's gone through three or four businesses, the whole kind of mentor thing, and who can give you an even bigger picture sense of the, of the 30,000 foot view. And I think that can be really helpful. Um, another suggestion I throw into the mix is, and this is picking up and pulling a bit on the slow thread again, is I've seen this happen often with companies, young entrepreneurs as well. Is you get once you get the, some sort of traction with an idea, you kind of, it just goes. It often acquires its own momentum, and you stop asking a question, which I think people realize much later on in life is really the key question, which is why. You know, why are you doing this? Right? You just I think you can get caught up, and I've had my own experience of this, where you're just doing it. Right? You don't you cease to ask why you're doing. It, why you're doing it the way you're doing it. If you started out here, you ended up there, but you're not really asking how you got there and if that's the right thing. So you, that's where the slow comes in again. It's taking time just to switch off, unplug, get away. You know, it might be a, a day away. It might be a week away. It might be just an hour away, a day or something, or just where you sh shift out of firefight mode. You shift out of flight or fight mode, which is so much of what defines uh, entrepreneurship for a lot of people and get into that kind of deeper richer, join the dots, spot the patterns, bigger picture view. And that can help you kind of just re, you know, course correct. Sometimes if you ask that, that why filter can help you get back to where you need to be so that the, the, the business ultimately flourishes more, I, I would argue, but also it flourishes in a more meaningful way. <laughs> However it comes out, it's going to mean more to you and be much more fulfilling if you've 
deploy the why word along the way. Yeah. And that's something that I've been very cognizant of, especially starting in 2020. And as busy, you know, when you're working for a company and you have like your required, your vacation that you're allotted, you know, it's, I feel like it's easier, but as a, as a business owner, sometimes it's like, no one's telling me that I should do this stuff. You can just keep working and working and working. Yeah. And so one of the things that I did in the very beginning of the year is I blocked out the last Thursday of the month. Well, I do calls on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So the last Thursday of the month, I don't do calls. So I basically have that Thursday through Sunday. So it's like a long weekend at the end of every single month. And then I take one week off at the end of every single quarter. And it's, you're right. Like what I do during that time, I think it's so important because you can just keep sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. But I think that like you say in the book, and maybe you can talk about this as a topic, there's this concept of tempo justo. I don't know if I said that correctly, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, finding the balance of there's there's a cadence of, yes, you need to be fast certain times, but you also need to slow down and, and kind of see where fits into everything else. So did I use that correctly? Is that, is that how you're supposed to use you it? You got the first part right. Well, it's Italian. So it's tempo giusto, right? Tempo giusto. Um, okay. So, which is <laughs> not, kind not of the, the idea that, yeah, <laughs> kind of the idea that every piece of music has a natural rhythm to it. And that, that in a way cuts to the core of the slow philosophy, which is about doing things at the right speed. So, you know, sometimes fast, sometimes slower, right? Sometimes turbo, sometimes tortoise. Uh, in fact, there was a great, there was a great, um, there's a good example recently of this, which underscores that the corporate world is waking up to the folly of doing everything faster and the power of slow, that The Economist magazine did a big survey looking at pace in the modern workplace. And they crunched the numbers and did all the data and everything. And the final two lines of that survey, right, from The Economist were, forget frantic acceleration, mastering the clock of business means knowing when to be fast, which is the bit we all know, right? But also when to be slow, right? When to be fast and when to be slow, right? So it's kind of, the tempo justo. It's when to be on, when to be off, when to lean in, but also when to lean back. Yeah. And it's kind of that gear changing. That's where the music and the magic happen, whether it's in the bedroom or the boardroom or wherever, right? Getting that right speed, getting your, you know, we all have our own personal metronome. What's fast for me might be slow for you. So there's no universal recipe for what the tempo justo is, right? But it's about finding your own correct tempo in the right moment. And, and one way to do that is what you described there is having those pause points, right? Where you kind of almost reboot, reset, and 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 any, any I mean, most or many, let's say, I want to say most um, successful business people, or I suspect most, will have built into their schedule some form of slow moment, right? So, I mean, famous examples are, you know, Bill Gates used to take two think weeks, right? Where he'd, a year, where he'd retri- retreat to a cabin in the woods and just read and ruminate and and he was one of the busiest people in the world, right? And he found two weeks to do that. Um, so so the, I think everybody can and everybody ought to find those little moments where you, you kind of reset and you get into tortoise mode. And then you'll be able to do the hair stuff faster, right? You go, when you get the slow, you top up your slow. When the fast comes, you're, you're more focused, you're calmer, you're still, you're able to deal with the speed. It's like athletes talk about being in the zone, right? You know, that, that that sensation almost of flow where the game is moving around you at 100 miles an hour, but you remain totally slow on the inside. Like Jimmy Connors, the tennis player, used to talk about when he was playing tennis at super high speed, right? The U.S. Open. It, he could see the ball coming at him in slow motion. It looked, He said it would look the size of a beach ball because he was just so calm, slow, and still and zen on the inside that in that fast moment, he could hit it out of the park. Well, you wouldn't want to hit it out of the park in tennis. Hit it over the net, right? <laughs> into, into the far corner, just inside the line. Um, so yeah, so that's a, such such an important um, thing there as well. Is that kind of slow those slow moments? 
Yeah. And another thing you talk about in the book that I think is a really relevant thing that I would love to nail in is the fact that slow actually does yield better results in many, many yeah. ways. And so do you have anything that you want to share on that topic of just encouraging somebody that may be skeptic, like think about the person that is like constantly working all the time and thinking that if you don't take a break, you're sacrificing on time that you could be working. What would you say to somebody about the power of slow and actually getting better results? Well, I, I think of it as I call it the delicious paradox of slow, right? That, that by slowing down, wisely, right? Not all the time, obviously. Judiciously, the right moments, you get better results and you get, sometimes you get them faster, right? That old military expression, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, yeah? That uh, multitasking is a perfect example, right? It's a good metaphor. You know, we, we think of multitasking as being so achingly modern and 21st century and super efficient, but actually human beings can't multitask, Right. <laughs> You know, uh, digital natives can't multitask. Women can't multitask, I'm afraid to say. Uh, you know, it, it's just not, we cannot do it. Human beings can't, you can't think meaningfully about two things at once. What we're doing when we multitask is juggling. So your attention is going from one thing to the next and jumping back and forth. And that's immensely wasteful cognitively. So if you if you if, put it this way, if you take two people, the fast one, the slow one, the fast multitasker, the slow monotasker, who wherever possible focuses on one thing at a time, give them the same list of tasks, the fast person will take up to twice as long and make up to twice as many mistakes, yeah? So there's a perfect example of that delicious paradox of slow, right? That by slowing down, taking the slow road, it's actually not that slow. You know, it's it's better, but it's also quicker. It's more efficient, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just coming back to that that idea of those slow moments and the change of gear, that I just remind, remind me that um, there's a quote from Aristotle, right? So this, these are ancient truths, yeah? Aristotle said something like, um, you know, that deliberation should be slow, but the action should be fast, right? So even in ancient Greece, people <laughs> got it, that you had to have those moments of slowing things down so that when the fast stuff came, you were on it. You were on your game, right? You, you had your A game there because you had your slow game in other moments of your week or your day. Uh, creativity, another good example. There's an intimate bond between slow and creative. I mean, all the great thinkers of science and the arts have always known that. They've always said, I mean, Darwin called himself a slow thinker. This is something that just, I mean, the science backs it up that we know that when people are in a relaxed, unhurried, mellow, slow state, the brain shifts into a richer, more nuanced, more creative mode of thought. And psychologists call it slow thinking, right? You know, and and and, and actually we all know that. This is not rocket science. I mean, if you're, I would just ask your listeners, let me ask your listeners a question now, in fact. Um, everybody, simple question. When do your best ideas come to you? In the shower. (laughs) There you go. I mean, in in the shower is actually the number one answer you get around the world. No one ever says, my best ideas come when I'm juggling 45 emails or racing to meet the deadline with a boss breathing down my neck. They come in the shower or walking the dog or swinging in a hammock on vacation or sitting on the porch, sipping lemonade on a Sunday afternoon, right? They come in those slow moments. So even, I would say not even even, I would say, especially in the fastest sectors of the economy, whether that's FinTech, finance, Silicon Valley, you need desperately the slow in order for the fast to work, right? Which is why you see so many, that's why, you know, I mean, I do a lot of work in Silicon Valley with companies and stuff and schools, and, and they're all over the idea of slow. Right? I mean, you can't swing a cat without hitting a mindfulness program in Silicon Valley, <laughs> right? I mean, they're all about, you know, switching it off, turning it down, this kind of thing. Um, and then coming back and, and, you know, really kicking it because they've got the slow from before, gear yeah. changing. 
Yeah. And I, I've been very blessed to say I've been, I've participated in many high level masterminds and you, you think, you know, lots of times people go to these high level masterminds looking for business wisdom, how to grow the company. But lots of times what people leave those events is the understanding that they need to slow down more. They need to take more time off. There's this concept that Dean Jackson teaches, who's a uh, awesome marketer. He, he teaches this concept of super happy fun days. Like as an entrepreneur, it's really important to have a super happy fun day where you can just completely disconnect and your mind should not be thinking about anything business related. And like you said, that's where the best insights actually come is when you allow your, your subconscious, your brain to process it without actually being focused all of it on it all the time. And the other thing that you think that you said, I think it was really interesting to maybe highlight too, is the fact that part of slowing down also means stripping away, like, because it's stripping away the variables. And so I was kind of, I was curious to dive into this as well with you is because, because of that correlation of being able to say no, and, and the fact that you're a slow coach and that you've helped people to organize their lives and be slower for somebody that has difficulty with saying no to those, to, to many different things. Do you, have you learned any insights over the years of how to say no more effectively? Yeah. I, I got a couple of uh, quick tips for <laughs> slowing, <laughs> slowing down and saying no. A uh, first one is just, is to uh, do baby steps, right? So don't start off by saying no to your biggest client. You know, that's not going to, that's going to be impossible is to start off with just low stakes no's. So, you know, tomorrow, next time you go to your coffee shop, you know, and your your favorite barista offers you, I don't know, something you would normally, like a muffin, you would normally just practice saying a polite no, right? Just no, just, just get used to saying the word no, because I think we're so often accustomed to rolling with it, going with it, letting it happen, saying yes to everything. We become yes men and yes women, <laughs> And we've kind of always forgotten how to form the word no in our, our mouths. And just so just to start, you know, trying that out and, and then build up from there. And, and also be sure that when you're saying a no, that it's couched in, you know, explaining to the person why you're saying no, that, and because and, often you'll be able to say, look, I'm saying no to this, but I'll be able to do the next thing better. Or I'm saying no now, and that'll make me a better friend or a better colleague or a better customer or a better partner or a better parent or a better, you know, citizen or neighbor or whatever. Uh, so kind of trying to, Start small with low stakes, um, couch and give context and explanation. But I have another technique which which I find quite useful that I was um, that I've given to many people over the years, and that's um, I, keeping a not to do list. So we all have to do lists, right? Um, and, and it's very scary to root, move anything off it. But I, I say set up a, set a parallel not to do list and move things across. You know, try and move one thing a day, say, and. It's, there's something so weirdly liberating about that uh, because there's, most people look at their to-do list and actually, if you really look at it in the cold light of day, so much of it is filler, right? There's Most of it can go, most of it six months from now, you won't even remember you did it. Um, and yet today you think, oh no, I can't let this go. The sky will fall in, right? That's the power of the not to-do list, right? First of all, it's sort of an active step. You're saying, I'm taking charge here, this agency, I'm moving something to somewhere else. I'm not just, it's not disappearing. It's going to be on the other list. And the other thing about the not to-do list is that you look, you keep them and you look back six months later. And the thing that you thought six months ago was undroppable, you think, I don't even remember (laughs) what that was, why I thought I even needed to do it. It wasn't important because so many of the things that we do are unimportant, right? We just, for from inertia, from other people's panic, from the whole kind of yes man, yes woman reflex. We end up just sort of saying yes to all this stuff that's not important. Most of the things we do could just go. So again, that's where the slow comes in. It's sort of slowing down, pausing and saying, take a few deep breaths here, look at my to-do list and think, you know what? 
Actually, that one thing that probably I, I could let that go. But if you too, if you come to it with a fast spirit, distracted, stressed, worried, you're going to look at the to do list and think, I need two more hours in the day. Right? You're not going to. You won't be able to parse it and pull out the thing that could go or the things that could go. So slow down, create the not to do list, use it later. And I, I find I, people find that really helpful. I think. Yeah. No- <clears throat> to layer on top of that, I think it's really relevant to think about your particular skill sets. Like what are the things that are truly your superpowers? Not the things that you're really good at or the things that you're excellent at, but what are the superpowers that you have? Because you can spend your whole life doing things that you're good at crossing things off, but like really understanding like what you just said of the not to do list that also correlates with the, the, few activities that you should be focusing on. And I think it really should be a few, a handful of things that you're you're truly passionate about that you want to continue to grow in. And that's really how you have exponential growth is when you say no to those things that you're good at, but somebody else most likely could do a better job than you. And you can just hone in on the things that you're incredible at. Yeah. And, and it's kind of flipping the no around as being no feels like something really counterculture. It feels off-putting. It feels negative. I mean, you know, Dr. No, you remember from the James Bond film, he was the bad guy, right? You know, it's just, just like what <laughs> no is, it, it goes against the, the grain. It feels like you're the killjoy and the party pooper. But I, I always suggest, and this is the way I think about it. No, I flip it around and I think, well, actually, no is 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 a, is a, is a hopeful step. It's a step up, not down, right? You're because sort of, when you say no to something that doesn't really matter that much, you're saying a big yes to the things that do, which is sort of what you've just said there about focusing on your superpowers, focusing on the stuff that really matters, that you really really do well, and letting all the other stuff melt away. And that, that will actually not only be a huge relief, but it will actually allow you to supercharge the superpower, right? Because you'll have so much more energy, verve, time, and bandwidth to invest in it. Mm-hmm. This is actually, so in, in my research in seeing like all the people that you've worked with, all the companies you've spoken to. So what, one of the things that I I would identify as one of your superpowers is the the fact that you're a public speaker and you do this speaking all over the place and you coach people all over the world on this this topic of slow. But another thing I, I came across in my research was the fact that uh, that wasn't always the case and that that public speaking was something that you used to be afraid of. And so I, was, I, would, I would love for you to maybe tell us about uh, the story of um, when you were in high school when you when you said no to something that you actually should have said yes to <laughs> and what that has to do with public speaking. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's one of, I, I don't have a lot of gre- regrets in my life, but that, that was one. I, I, I had a cold terror of public speaking growing up in school and stuff. And I just, the prospect of standing up in front of more than three people I didn't know, just what brought me on a cold sweat. And there was a, there was a uh, summer camp called Sunnya, which was a kind of UN camp in the Rocky Mountains, not far from where I, I lived in Edmonton. And all my friends signed up for it. And, and you each, you know, you're going to spend a few days there and, you know, obviously beautiful to be in the Rocky Mountains, but it was, you, you had, you were each person participant was assigned a country. So you had to give a speech yeah, defending or on some subject. And I just thought, I can't do it. I'm, I just, I just can't do it. So I didn't apply. Of course, all my friends applied, went off and had amazing life-changing experiences and still talk about it today. <laughs> and <laughs> it was fun. I, I even now just telling you the story <laughs> slightly kind of what am I feeling? I feel like a sort of butterfly, my stomach sensation, but yeah. So I, I thought I came away from that thinking I really lost something there. And then I kind of went through university and I still didn't really have to do public speaking, avoided it. And then when, and all the way through journalism, I, I you know, journalism is a, you know, outward facing profession, but I was a writer. So it was just, you know, my words would go out there and that was fine. Then when my first book came out, right, 
that's when I, I, I got pushed into the deep end. You, you have to, you know, first it starts off, you have to stand up in front of eight slightly puzzled, bored people in a bookstore, right? <laughs> when you're just starting her. And, and that was pretty scary for, but I just had to do it. Right. And it was, it was, that was one of those moments where it just, there was no choice. And pretty quickly I realized that I could do it and that I could do it well. And that I really enjoyed it. I, I found the, the kernel of, of light inside it. So it was, it was, it was that I, I it's funny that I sometimes wonder if I hadn't been pretty much crowbarred into doing it by writing a book, if I wouldn't still be running away from speaking in public now, it's, um, I don't know, maybe something else would have brought me to it, but, um, yeah, that's how so do you, my... do you view speaking as one of your, cause obviously writing is one of your superpowers. Do you view speaking as one of the things that you, you, you think are kind of like in that skill set that like, if you only could kind of focus on a few things, that would be one of them. Yeah, it would be definitely. I mean, I, I sort of view it as part of a, a, a I think of myself as now, a, um, I don't, I don't come across as sort of somebody who sits around thinking about himself a lot of solipsistic, but you know, someone for me, it's word, it's communication. I suppose words, right. I, I, I'm a, I love words. That's why I've learned other languages and, I love I love reading. I love seeing words on the page. I love the sound of them, and I love using them. I love the way. And there's not. I still get probably the greatest thrill. Maybe I still get out of anything in my work is when I finish a paragraph and think, "Wow, that is perfectly crafted. That couldn't be better." Right? There's just this amazing soaring sense of lightness and joy that comes from that. And I, I suppose I, I get a similar kind of adrenaline rush being on the stage. So I guess I think of it as words. So sometimes I'm writing, other times I'm speaking to you on a podcast or doing like a kind of audio type thing. Other times I'm on stage in kind of performance mode where I'm up there walking around telling jokes and stuff. And and that's a different register. But to me, it feels like part of the same portfolio in a way. And oh, each one brings me different kinds of, of, of elation and feelings of satisfaction and feelings that I'm actually doing something in the world to, to help people. Because that was another thing, if I compare back to my that first chapter in journalism, I went into, I started off our conversation talking about having a save the world complex and I still have it, but I, I definitely was feeling towards the end of journalism that I wasn't getting there with that. It was the wrong medium. It, I just felt like I was part of the infotainment complex. And, you know, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand, the number of letters I got from readers. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, now with books, I know we've got social media, it's easy to reach out and get to people, but you know, I, I, all I get hear from people every day. I hear from people somewhere in the world, someone saying your work has changed my life, you know, and I get long letters and emails and whether it's watching a talk or doing a course or reading a book or, and that is that, that, I mean, that really, that turbocharges you right. And on times when you're feeling that you might just want to throw it all in and become a fisherman in Sicily or something. And, and then you'll <laughs> read a letter, you read a letter from, from, I don't know, an architect in Vietnam or a, or a young mother of four in Nigeria or something. And, and, and just saying, you know, this, this really touched me and this is what my story is. And I, I just think, wow, that, that's, it, it feels like such a privilege to, to be where I am now in that sense. And I think words have got me there. Is there a story that stands out in particular, like a letter that you'll never forget that you received or an email that you'll never forget? Well, one where early on, I got from a, a, a child who was, um, and this this was a lot. Um, I, I was taught, when my first my second book, Under Pressure, which is about parenting and education, came out. I was I started to hear from a lot of adolescents talking about how they associated with all the pressure and stuff. And then I got a, I got a, an email from a, a kid who was, he was he was eight years old, 
and he was he was just I mean he was under so much pressure from his parents and stuff to be the perfect kid and everything. And he he wrote this quite long letter to me about all the, the how you know how dark and difficult this all was. And then in the end, he said uh, he was just before Christmas. He said my my Christmas wish is that you would um, come to my house and speak to my parents. Oh my god! And I thought, oh my god! <laughs> it's just like, I feel my heart contracting even now, telling him that was years ago. And of course, I didn't I didn't go to his house to talk to his parents, but I, I did write to him and you know. We wrote back and forth a little bit, and he was very young. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Eight, but, um, eight yeah. to like find your email address and like like yeah. send a concise letter about it. Like, wow, that's insane. Yeah. I know that was insane. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, maybe he was nine, but he was he was he was definitely in. I think he was primary school. He was probably grade six, so that would make him nine. Maybe he was nine ten. Yeah, so eight, yeah, he was great. He was he was grade six. I remember he was last year of primary um, or elementary. So anyway, yeah, so that one really sticks with me, but. And, and and that sticks with me because that's like a stake in the heart kind of missive. But there are so many other ones which are much more just luminous, right? They're just joyous. People saying, you know, I I had this epiphany reading your, this or whatever, and I've changed my family this way. I've reordered my business. I've changed careers. I've moved. I don't know. It's just wonderful. It just feel like you feel like you've just played a tiny little part in 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 a, in a big drama somewhere else. And yeah, that's. That's, I guess, so I'm feeding, I'm, I'm appeasing my save the world complex, I suppose. Well, okay, so you, you mentioned <laughs> one, that. One email times. at a time. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that three times now, the save the world complex. Is that something that like you've, you've had since you were a kid? Like, did your parents instill it in you? Like, what is it with this need to save the world? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've often wondered that myself where it comes from. My, my, my parents are, I mean, now there's a sort of charity. My, my father was a pathologist and a, my mom was a teacher. So they're both teachers in that sense, which is, I guess, a, <clears throat> a kind of giving, caring type profession. I don't know. I had my my first girlfriend was a real social uh, warrior, crusader type, and about she had a big social save the world thing. So I kind of discovered it with her. So I don't know whether I, I she awakened it in me or I, you know, <laughs> took it on because I was desperate to go out with her, and then it, it stuck. Who <laughs> knows? I'm never quite sure. Uh, I hope it's not the latter, right? That just seems a little bit shallow. I think it was probably that it was there in one form or another. I, who knows why some of these things come to, to be. And then, and it definitely, I was awoke. It, it, it woke up when I was with her, and then it kind of never went away. In fact, I was mm. with her at the time when I stumbled across that Canada World Youth desk, and and we both applied. And um, yeah. We're not together now, <laughs> but you know, so that, yeah, gosh, that really going back in um, to old history here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, it's funny. Cause this weekend, hopefully I am interviewing my grandpa. Um, and it's just because I've been doing so many podcasts lately and there's this quote that's been coming up over and over and over and over again for me. And I think it's just so relevant and it's by Carl Jung and it's, um, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And there's like so many of these like unconscious narratives that we have that were programmed at a young age, or maybe an experience of going to Brazil or, you know, having uh, a girlfriend at a young age that was talking about the importance of saving the world. And like, those are unconscious narratives that are controlling us that we can't even visibly see yet. We've crapped our entire lives around these experiences. And so that's kind of like why I'm really excited. I'm, I'm interviewing my grandpa and my grandma, just, you know, not as formal as this, but I just, I feel like that's something where it's like, I like many people don't even know 
the like where they really came from and the history of their 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 family and i think that by interviewing my grandparents i'll at least some see their life experiences how it was transposed upon my parents and like the the unconscious patterns that were then given off yeah. to me so like that's why i like asking those kinds of questions because like, it's really curious to see how life's form around these things that we've had just since the very beginning well, that's that's so interesting that's going to be an amazing interview for you to do i mean i, I think that's why there's so much or one reason there's so much fascination with you know, genealogy and people tracing their roots. And when people don't know their parents, they find that very traumatic and want to get to know the history. And so on. there's something about, I mean, Jung put it that his way, but it is that it's kind of trying to impose some kind of narrative structure on the story that we've either told ourselves or that has unfolded around us or that we've forged without knowing. And it's, it's such an interesting subject to burrow into. And I think family archaeology is such a good way of getting there, right? Is digging up those artifacts and thinking, is there a bit of me in here? And it's, did that shape me? And I didn't know it at the time. And you know, that's, that's fascinating. Just to throw in a Carl Jung quote that I just was looking at literally before we jumped on, on this call, um, which ties into what we've been speaking about, about slow and taking time and the long life and not rushing. Carl Jung said once, uh, life really does begin at 40. Until then, you're only just doing research. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm okay with I'm okay with doing lots of research right now. I think it's yeah, research is often where the real fun is. Actually, it's the hard part is writing the book or putting the stuff together. The research is the that's the that's the honey. <laughs> yeah, well, I I want to be respectful with your time. I know we're kind of coming up on on things here. I, I did want to talk about one last topic, and then we can kind of uh, wrap things up. But like the your most recent book is all about this concept of of aging, and I listened to this this uh, where is it in my notes here? I listened to this interview that you did uh, in in Spanish, and I was really interested in some of the things that you brought up. Um, it was como, como envejecer mejor y como luchar contra el edadismo. <laughs> That's a, it's a word that I don't come across that much. But one of the people that you talked about is she, the, the interviewer had asked you about the most significant people that you met on this journey of interviewing older people and some of the people that stuck in your mind. And one of the people that you brought up and made, I don't know if I'm mixing interviews, but one of them is somebody named Jocko. Gian yeah. I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, but, but I was just kind of maybe curious to talk about some of these inspirational things that we can look forward to uh, as, as we get older, that it doesn't have to, we don't have to all cram it in because there are incredible people out there. So maybe share a yeah. little bit about Jocko or other people that it imparted. Well, on you. that was such a, I mean, what I what I didn't want to write was a kind of here are lots of older people doing amazing thing book because I I think that in a way that's kind of weirdly ageist and, and unhelpful. <laughs> but but of course there are some examples in in the book of people who are doing stuff. It's kind of a reminder that it's not all downhill from forty, right? As Jung says, um, that that so many things stay the same as you get older, and many actually get better. You know the happiness curve we talked about. Um, in some ways, creativity improves. We 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 have stronger relationships, and also we we have a one of the things that I think is often underestimated is how much freedom people, that kind of lightness. I mean, there, there's a great quote from Ann Landers, which, uh, you know, the old agony aunt um, from way back. She said, um, at, at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. And at 60, we realize that they were never thinking about us at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> which which is one of my favorite quotes because it kind of gets at that, that, that thing that often holds us back when we're younger is that fear of being judged or boxed off or you know we're worried about what other people think i remember it so clearly right and then you do get to so around 40 you think okay i don't i don't really care when you know i'm, I'm me I'm, I'm i'm okay with who i am and this is what and then funny i think you get six and you realize actually all that stuff they nobody people are so worried about their own selves they're not really thinking about you 
Um, and I think what that gets at is that sort of lightness that comes on in later life that we were able to let go of the things, the people, the routines, the obligations that don't light us up and just let it go, right? And streamline, focus, like we were saying before, focus on our superpowers, focus on the stuff that fuels our ikigai. And I think that is a big part of that happiness curve, that we get that freedom to just let the rest of it fall by the wayside and zero in on what really really bring really brings us and 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 because of that i think people very often find themselves opening up wildly new doors in later life and coming up with completely new ways of doing things and jacko is a perfect example right she was one of the she was probably my favorite <laughs> interview in the whole book she's a she was a she was a woman in a lebanese woman living in beirut totally unremarkable life running a guest house and then in her 80s she was discovered by a tv station and turned into a a kind of national celebrity hero. She like the whole, she became a, a a star of a candid can, camera series where they would send out older people into the community filming secretly and do, getting them to do things that you know torpedoed stereotypes about older people. So the, the the classic one that she did was she went into a pharmacy, you know, eighty six year old woman, in a, you know, quite frail in a little house coat, asking for Viagra, right, for her lover, and and it's just. It's just comedy gold, right? It's so funny, the whole sketch. And she became a superstar across um, all of the Arab world. And I, so I, I kind of hung out with her and met her um, actually towards the end of her life. It was, it was, so I was, in fact, weirdly, I was the last person to interview her before she died. But she was just this extraordinary just fountain of, of life, right? She just had such a sense of humor. She had such a lightness about her. And it was just, it was so uplifting to think, you know, you can get into your eighties and maybe you've, maybe, I mean, I've had, I've considered what I've had so far, pretty good innings, right? A pretty good life. But to think, you know, even in your 82, you could take a sudden veer off or pivot this way and a, and a whole new vista might open up. Right. And I just think there's something, what's, what, what could be better news if you're sitting at whatever age you are, 25, 35, 45, I'm thinking, oh man, this is good, bad now, or I've got to make it all now because later it's going to, it's going to suck. It won't, right? I mean, that's the thing about ageism, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think growing older will be bad, it will, my friend, right? I mean, this, the science is really clear on that, that if you have a, a dim, downbeat view of aging, if you buy into the cult of youth, you're more likely to suffer physical cognitive decline, get dementia, and even die younger, up to seven and a half years younger, right? So ageism or the cult of youth is the ultimate act of self-harm. So I guess that's what I was trying to do with my book, Boulder, was to say, look, there is a whole different way of thinking about aging that is completely, you know, it's more nuanced and it's more optimistic, right? It's more realistic. It's saying some things we lose as we grow older, but other things stay the same and many, many actually get better. And yeah. there's so much there for everyone, right? If with, yeah. a, with a little luck in the right spirit, every age can be magnificent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I would highly encourage anybody listening. If you just searched, I don't remember how I found it, but if you just searched Jocko or old lady ordering Viagra or something like that, you can yes. find it on YouTube. I think it's Viagra Beirut Arab TV or something. Yeah, it is so like that. You don't need to know Arabic at all. It's just the expressions of people's faces are just. That's the funny part is like, like you hear, you know, in many languages, it's like, you'll hear, like you hear her say Viagra. Like, so like yeah, that's yeah. like the one word you'll understand, but then you see like the people's faces and they're like, what the hell is happening? That's so <laughs> funny. Um, so, so that, and like somebody else that I know you interviewed, I would encourage somebody else to check out. If you want another example, is this uh, woman named Shirley Curry. Uh, she's an online gamer. Um, and, and, and like, she has a YouTube channel with almost a million YouTube subs. 
So it's just, it is really cool and refreshing to know that you can reinvent yourself at any age and like whatever path you're on right now. Like it just, to me, it makes me take things less seriously because it's like, sometimes we take ourselves so seriously about everything that we're focused on. But the fact that you see people like this, that can just, you know, in their, in their eighties, just decide to do something completely different. I was yeah. watching Sarah Archer, the, the person that connected us, she interviewed someone recently that was on like America's got talent or Britain's got talent some somewhere. And she's like an uh, elderly comedian. And like, she's like doing comedy in front of everybody as well. And like just reinventing yeah. herself. And she does, she does some, some, some <laughs> crazy stuff too, as an, as an elderly woman, which is, which is really cool. So thank you so much for that work. I think it's really important for mm-hmm. uh, important conversation for people to be having. Great. Yeah. So, uh, in, in closing, where can people find out more of the, the stuff that you're working on Carl and, and keep up to date with the new sure. work that you're publishing? That's super easy. I, I have a, a link tree link, which has got everything from books to talks to courses, you name it. You can email me there. It's Carl Honoré, my name, Carl Honoré altogether, info. Perfect. That is, that is where you can find everything. And I'll just say, uh, last question before we completely wrap things up as somebody that has studied happiness so much, and has has interviewed so many people. What is your definition of happiness? What does happiness mean to you now? I think I, in 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 the fewest words possible. I think it's waking up in the morning and thinking, "Yeah, another day." Mm, I love that. <laughs> Period. <laughs> we'll we'll end on that. So I'll just say, if you're if you're listening to us right now and you're brand new, I just want to say welcome. It is an honor to have you hanging out with me and Carl today. And I hope you become a regular listener or subscriber. And I bring on incredible people like Carl every single week. And as you can tell, I like to go really deep on these conversations. And so if you're returning, I also want to say thank you. You're what makes this possible. I really appreciate you. And regardless, if you're new or returning, please go give this uh, podcast a rating or review. And do me a favor if if you've listened to this and you've enjoyed enjoyed the incredible work that Carl is doing. Share this with a friend. I've had so many friends that have shared podcasts with me and it's completely changed my life or the way I thought about things. So if you have, if you have a friend that's a speed demon, that's going all over the place and you think they, they could, they could benefit from learning how to slow down and the benefits of learning how to slow down, please just click that share button and share that so that we can spread more of Carl's incredible message. So Carl, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. And this has been a blast. It has been, I've loved it from start to finish. It's been a real treat chatting to you, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.